Welcome to episode 189 of A Pint with Shawnee B, coming to you from the beautiful city of Bordeaux. All changed in A Pint with Shawnee B. Um, Shawnee B is on a midlife crisis stroke, 54 years of age, backpacking tour of the world for the next few months. And uh, my first stop and port of call is Bordeaux. Uh, I'll be going to Greece and other places as well and hope to be reporting from the colonies to you all in that time. Uh, while I was here, one of my good friends, one of the guys I've known the longest, certainly professionally, and uh, probably we've known each other for 30 years. Professionally and still alive. Professionally and still alive um, is a man called David Hayes. Or Dave is like, I'm the only one who calls you Dave, you said recently. Mm, yeah, you're in the minority. His wife, Miriam, hello Miriam, uh, calls him David. Um, I call him Dave and we've known each other since uh, my first job and your second job in advertising in the 80s, God forbid, in Dublin. Welcome. So just two points of correction. Yeah. Trivial points. Yeah. It's not a midlife crisis, you're 54. <laughs> suggests you live to 108, I don't think so. It's an old man crisis. Well, it reminds me just on that one of a great Onion headline, which was 12-year-old Somali boy has a midlife crisis. Which is a bit awful, but... True. <laughs> and the second point is, from what you've told me, certainly last night over dinner, is that it's, it's an easterly 180 tour, so not officially it's not around, around the world yet, but it could develop into that. So the plan loosely is to go to Greece and then maybe uh, Singapore and maybe Thailand and maybe Bali and eventually wash up in Sydney, which I have missed terribly in the last six years, which you've never been to. Never been further than Mumbai. Really? Or San Fran. Okay. So you've only done 180 as well, kind of. Yeah. Dave is a, uh, the head of a company called Wavemaker, uh, which is a big media company. Uh, he runs the Irish operation. And way back in the early 90s, before I slung my hook for the first time out of Ireland, we were planning to go into business together. We never did. Well, for the 189 episodic listeners of Sean and <laughs> B will know that Sean is an angry old man. I <laughs> met Sean man. first when he and I were both angry young men right. in advertising. And what I liked about Sean was that he was even angrier than I was at the time. <laughs> I've lost some of that anger. I don't think Sean has, but it's what drew the two of us together. But we talked about kept this together. Yeah, we talk about our old war stories. And I think one of the things that's interesting to me now is how we took it so seriously. And we did want to change things. And we did want to make great work. And we did want to do we talked, we talked last night about advertising being a part of culture and it's lost that, you know, because very rarely now will an ad break through to the point where the Levi's 501 work or the Audi Vorsprung Dirt Technic or all the sort of great work that was being produced in the UK in the 80s ever manages to cut through because we're so awash with content. Do you agree with that? Uh, Apart from your Yacht Play campaign. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Yopley, if you're listening, it was great. What I would say is that what connected Sean and I back in the day was uh, what was a very early idea of the whole, whole concept of bringing media and creative together. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you can only resonate with a consumer if you've got a touch point that 
would actually reach that consumer and manage to make that message work perfectly. Today, that is probably even more relevant because it's becoming more complicated to reach consumers. What's probably breaks my heart is that the means to connect, i.e. the creative message, the big idea, or whatever we used to call it, has gone, and you just don't reminisce about or talk about ads that appear today because they're shit. And you also feel like a bit of an arsehole or an idiot <laughs> talking about them. Um, this podcast did start off with a lot of people from advertising and quickly developed into like, there's only so much you can say about the industry. Um, on the 4th of October, which is less than a week, of, week away, I will be 40 years in advertising, which is frightening. Far too long. Far too long. <laughs> What's your plan? Are you going to exit? Yeah. What's the plan? Definitely exit. Get out. And we're putting something. it down here so I can play this back to you. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's only so many times one can walk around the block and 40 years is probably 40 times around the block. So yeah. it's 40, probably 36 times too many. I was talking to someone recently about this and, you know, the whole LinkedIn culture, which drives me absolutely mental. All these people on LinkedIn going, I'm delighted and excited and thrilled and blessed to be, you know, launching this piece of shit. They don't say that, but like this whole kind of, just the vibe of LinkedIn, which is just so kind of toady and fake and political. And, um, you know, we, we have this uh, grandiose, award-driven, ego-driven kind of feeling that we're much more important as an industry than I think we are. And like I was saying, I don't think there's anything that I've done in my whole career that's any good or in any way kind of, I've, I've come close a few times, I've hit the crossbar with Gillette and a few others, but you know, I look back in a career of like, pap. You so, don't quite see so, that. So, right? so when Sean and I have these conversations, <laughs> they generally turn into what I would call existential conversations. Yes, so hopefully you will. On ones of fucking extreme ar argumentative. So the first thing I'm going to push back on you is, okay. is the advertising industry invented awards. Yeah. One. Two, the advertising industry invented ego. So when I think... What, well, what makes I mean, Julius Caesar... Or he's probably Christ, an ad he's probably, I think Julius Caesar was a very good Pax Romana was probably the best ad campaign <laughs> that side of BC but I no seriously Christ was doing experiential marketing <laughs> turning loaves and fishes into wine and absolutely marriages and things like that sponsored by Heineken I, I, I think LinkedIn is a reflection of where advertising was in the 80s and 90s Everybody is brilliant. Everybody does well. Every company is successful. Yeah. Every person in every company is successful. It's just a way of promoting yourself on the awards of the 80s, the 90s, the can, all of this. And it's just a way of promoting them. Other companies have got really good at, or other, sorry, categories have got really good at doing it. And yeah. advertising now is kind of a small part of all of that. But we're an ego-driven business, Shoney. You know that. I know that. If the work is shit, well, then we are shit. Yeah, well, that's what that's your 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 uh, preaching to the choir there. What is the plan to exit? So the plan to exit. Well, I'm fifty seven. I've got a contract that takes me through to sixty, which I think is about fifteen years. Way too fucking old to work yeah. in this industry. The funny thing about that though is that well, two things. Right, one, I do want to go because mm. I've, I've, I've you've done your dash. I've done I've done my bit. The other thing, and I would say that is the um, experience. 
when we talk about big ideas and you know how campaigns I think of all the brilliant campaigns and I'm talking about metrics that measure how successful a campaign is metrics that measure how successful a company is and we talked about Levi's mm -hmm. we talked about Budweiser campaigns like that that really change the fortunes of companies but all of that experience is not welcomed or indeed in other industries it will be extolled and yeah law for example exactly yeah so I, it will be it's no a, country for old men it's no country <laughs> for old men so it'll be a bittersweet departure there's a lot of experience out there that I could bring to bear but the other side of me says I couldn't give a fuck and you 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 know I've written about this and I, I, I think it's even more serious for the business than that because I think AI is going to just obliterate in the next five years in terms of the creative side of things and probably the media side as well where you can just get machines to do the work of 10 or 12 or 20 people better so I, I, my prediction is that AI will become the driving force of creativity and ads will all be done by computers and you'll be able to do cool ads and they might even look better than the ads that are made today. The danger that I see about digitization, data, AI and automation, so those four things, right, um, which are driving our industry, um, there's a lot of what we do can be automated. So yeah. you suddenly automate it and you take, you know, squillions of dollars out of a budget that are just by people manually doing stuff all over the world. Mm. And that's a huge attraction to any company that's listed on the stock exchange. The, the danger is that, and I was reading this recently, is that all parts of automation and AR, AI are ultimately powered by algorithms. Algorithms are ultimately written by human beings. So the, the power of the, of the AI and the power of the automation are down to the power of what the individual understands and knows. Mm. So if you've got, and I don't want to be ageist here, a 25-year-old writing an algorithm, and they're probably around 25, and they don't have the benefit of 40 years' experience that you and I have, mm. well, then ultimately all of that tech and what it's delivering doesn't actually stand up. Well, yes and no. I think Mid Journey is a good example of something, though, that just is a new is a new piece of technology. Anyone who's looking at it, just Google it. It's astonishing. It's not sentient, but it basically, you know, it basically you can type in what you want to see, and it will do, you know, a hundred and fifty or two hundred or a thousand within twenty four hours renditions in visual format of what you typed in. The algorithm or, or the, the, the software may have been written by a 25 year old, but it's almost like the scariness is that the machine is starting to actually think over and above what it's been programmed to do. It has been programmed to take, you know, we, I, we, I was mucking around with one with uh, my friend Andy Fleming. Um, you know, you type in Robot Bono and it'll just show you all these immaculate posters of a, of a version of Bono that looks like a robot. Or, you know, we did James Joyce painted by Picasso. And again, a thousand versions that look like Picasso did paint James Joyce. So they're, they're, the machine is not going into the internet to find existing images. It's creating it out of thin air because it knows what Picasso's work looks like and it knows what James Joyce looks like. And it is able to render something from scratch. I mean, that's so I, just I terrifying. I think I've just been flown into the wrong podcast because I think we're talking about Definitely an area that I'm not qualified no, no, to I, talk I mean, about. I mean, just I don't you, understand. You, you did say existential. I think the, it, it is it, going to all come crashing down. As far as I understand, and this is an extremely limited understanding, that all of that AI and automation is based on a number of mathematical rules that have been written by somebody somewhere. Mm. So to understand what Picasso 
Tinks or Lux yeah. or Fields or James Joyce is based on a, a number of mathematical formulae that have been actually imp, input. No, I don't think so. I, mean, I, I think the machine learning gets better based on yeah. what I mean, it is. You'll be able to do TV as well. You'll be able to do radio. I mean, it'll just be... I don't know how they do it as well. It's, it looks like magic right now, but I'm just trying to imagine what that extrapolates out as in a year or two's time when it gets harnessed. I don't disagree with you, but I do think short-term, medium-term, long-term, I think what you're probably talking about is medium to long. Short, short, say short to medium, which I'm talking one to five years. Yeah. I don't see see that. I, I, I genuinely, and I come from a side of the business where automation and AI is probably being used more so than on the creative side of the industry. I don't see at the moment AI and automation replacing a lot of what humans do. The danger that I see, or the lack of experience that I see and the danger in over-reliance on this technology is that you just stop thinking. Mm. And you think, I think you're probably, Sean, are a bit of a, a bit of a problem in terms of where you're coming from, is that you're thinking that the machine will do everything, mm. but actually it won't. You still, medium to short, or mm. short to medium, do need the person to do it. And I think the danger we as an industry are at the moment is that we're not engaging brains to think about, you know, going back to where I was brought up, which is all about understanding the consumer, what's the insight, what is it that's going to make this person buy a product? Mm. It's not going to, at the moment, I'm not seeing anything that's going to come out of any machine in on the planet okay. that's going to replace that kind of thinking. But the danger is that we've got, we're bringing up a whole generation of people who think, as a clients as well, that's a black box solution. The, mm. the black box says you do this. So well, you already have that in place in your business and media in terms of delivering numbers and no one really cares how irritated well, we make we make consumers with pumping them with the same ad over and over again. You know, just just want to make a number. And this goes back to experience, Sean, because yeah. you know the, the same old shit that went on back in the eighties. We talked about it as frequency, the long tail of frequency. Why would you talk to somebody ten times with the same fucking ad? Mm. I mean, they've either decided to buy your product or they fucked off and bought something. Or you'll else. start irritating them to the point where they never touch. And it. here we go, forty years later, we're doing the same shit, irritating people with fucking technology. Mm. And the technology should be working better. The reason that technology is not working better is that people don't understand that are right. pulling the levers, yeah. understand what that technology is, sorry, understand what that consumer is thinking mm. as a result of the technology that they use. So let's go, up, let's go after the inside thing, because again, I think what one of the other things this shows up is how faux complex we have deliberately made advertising as advertising practitioners, we've kind of we, we come up with these bespoke ways of explaining strategy, of of, of of econometrics, of all that kind of stuff. And it's like, and again, I'm jaundiced, and again, I'm, you know, as people say, the problem with Sean is he doesn't like advertising, which is what I get leveled at me a lot, which is just, I think, kind of shallow and funny. But, you know, you end up working at somewhere like P&G and it's all about the consumer journey and it's all about bringing them into research groups and finding out what makes them tick. If you're working on Gillette, what makes a consumer tick in 1950 or 60 or 70 in terms of shaving? You're not going to crack anything new or different, but yet still millions is put in, hey, well, oh, this time we're really going to do a new research thing. And it's all bullshit. I mean, it's also client approved bullshit. The Gillette ads haven't been changed in 30, 40 years. It's like showing the product in action. Every man knows how to shave. 
and a woman stroking a guy's face or a sports athlete getting a touchdown or scoring a goal. You know, it's that fucking remedial and stupid and simple and also crap. Because Gillette, if they really want to do something, you know, should be inspiring men to greatness. They should be like a Nike or a Patagonia or one of those brands because they're so big. So the first thing is, I think you've made about 47,000 points in that <laughs> 90 seconds that you've said. Five blades, um, the first thing I would say is that our business is incredibly complex for one very simple reason. And that is, thankfully, people, people's brains and the way they react and act mm. is incredibly complex. One of the things that I've enjoyed most about this industry is that I have an interest in people. I like traveling. I like meeting different people. I enjoy people's company because I think we are incredibly interesting, the human race. Um, we'll never cease to be amazed how entertaining and different people are. And that's what I think advertising is about. So it's a lifelong study of, it, of understanding the way people react. What I would disagree with you is that I think 1950s man or woman is incredibly different to a 2022 man sure. or woman. Yeah. And what we deliver in terms of basically a message to convince somebody to buy a Gillette product is, is inherently different to what was in 1950. So understanding that is very important. And I do think a research and strategy and all of that is important to, to form that. I, I would agree with you absolutely. Fucking Gillette ads haven't changed in fucking 50 years. But that's the acid test. But nobody was born no, no, to say they were Let's say the 70s, 80s, the best a man can get, punching the air, holding babies to your but chest. But nobody... No, no, if it's so complex, if the business is so complex, as you say it is, and how people... Behave, then why is all advertising lowest common denominator dumbed down to the nth degree rubbish wallpaper? Right? If, if, if we really are trying to work out what makes people tick, Sorry, why do we end up with an end product if, that's just so if, dopey? But look at the two most successful companies on the planet driven by probably two of the most successful pe people on the planet, so uh, Tesla or SpaceX and Apple. And both of those guys that drove both of those companies, the one thing that didn't drive them was the share price. So Gillette being an example of P&G or Unilever or WPP, which I work for, are all companies that are dri driven by share mm -hmm. price. Share price is short-term gains, it's not long-term gains. So why would you change something that seems to be delivering value to your company and to your shareholders. Mm -hmm. So if we look at what Steve Jobs did, if we look at what Elon Musk has done, both of those were incredibly brave men in terms of what they did, the risks that they took, mm. putting billions of dollars on the line of what may or may not have worked. As long as we work for Unilevers and Procter and & Gamble's and General Mills and all these type of companies, you're gonna get the same results shown because advertising is not gonna change the way those companies think and unfortunately, when I came into this business in 1982, I want to exit sometime in the 21st century. Advertising does still not sit in the boardroom of global companies. No, I, I, again, we could go back and forth on this. I think, you know, if you took something like the very famous Audi campaign done by BBH in the 80s and 90s in the UK, Vorsprung Dirk Technik, right? Vorsprung Dirk Technik means progress through technology. The story goes, John, the head of BBH, John Hegarty, saw it over in a factory and asked what it was. And he came back to the UK and launched the entire brand around a German. And, you know, the Brits hate the Germans. And that's the sort of thing that you won't get out of AI ever. Okay. No AI will ever go, 
because the AI will go, uh, Britain, Germany don't like each other. The last thing we're going to have is a German tagline for a, a German brand in England, right? So I see that, but you know, that uh, Audi today, have, they still use that occasionally, I think, or it's around, knocking around, but it's got no meaning anymore. Whereas before they were culture, it, was, it had a cultural meaning, as I said earlier, with advertising was driving culture. That was a shareholder owned company that probably was challenger brand to Mercedes and BMW in Germany and has now risen to that challenge, I suppose, and the closer it gets to rising the challenge, the more nervous they get about fucking around with it which I'll take your point on. But this idea that you go and you say, I want to go and make some advertising that's going to stand out, it's going to touch people, it's going to make them feel something, is all going away. It's all pretty much gone away. The Super Bowl, any year of the last three years, watch the ads, they're all dreadful. They used to be good. That was the only time America did good advertising. All the complexity, all the research, all the understanding of what consumers makes them tick is not coming out at the end of the sausage machine. In fact, it's becoming worse. My mind is racing to keep, keep up. The first thing is, uh, as, as somebody that loves consumer behavior, a consumer insight, a, a really changing, game changer of a consumer insight is amazing. And Versprung, Dirk Technique, was probably one of the best consumer insights. I think of the... It's not a consumer insight. It's it a is. product insight. Well, it's not really a product insight because it's what consumers think, right? And what consumers think of Germany. They fucking make good shit. Hmm. The Brits didn't make good shit. They made bad yeah. shit. The Germans made good shit. So you may not like the Germans, but why fuck they can they build yeah. a car? What John Hegarty did was build that very clunky kind of insight into something that would resonate with the, with, the, with, the, with the British audience. So that's the first point. That was a brilliant consumer insight mm -hmm. that changed the perception of VW in the UK. Or Audi. <laughs> or Audi. <laughs> well, owned by VW. Oh, anyway, sorry, the point I think you're missing on John Hegarty and BBH is that it's not that Audi was a PLC and listed on the German Stock Exchange. It's that John Hegarty was an independent creative right. agency based right. in the UK. And John couldn't give a fuck whether Audi bought the fucking line or not. Mm. And he couldn't give a fuck whether BBH made any money on delivering that or not. Yeah. So I don't think you could give a lot of kudos to Audi. I think all the kudos was to BBH, one of the most lauded, applauded agencies of, sure. of its time. Well, I met John Hegarty about five years ago, Can, and you know he was very gracious and very, you know, spoke with me for over an hour. Um, he just won some Lifetime Achievement Award at Cannes. But like John Hegarty's still involved in BBH, right? And I, I remember saying to him, like, what happened, John? You know, why, why, why are you still not, why are you still not, even you're still there, you're still in charge, making the sort of work that you were making that was so impactful and so standout? And he said to me one word, because of you guys, planners came along and wrecked it. So I know what he means by that. He was joking a little bit, but he said, you know, the overthink and the kind of the, 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 the fear of trying to do, just go with something. You know, like the Vorsprung Dirt Technique would never get through research pre-testing. Because all the Brits go, fuck off, we're not having a fucking German fucking line. I don't even know what it means, right? That would die. I mean, and like even the bravest client would be hard pressed to go to his board and say, yeah, we're going with this. Because the board would go, fuck off, mate. We're not having Vorsprung, a German line. They wouldn't see that jump and how important it could be. And planners like me, which is my job in the business, would probably have killed it as well before it even got to a client. And certainly the suits would have. I think, Sean, I mean, if we're to be honest, 
you know, we were talking earlier about how old advertising is as a business, and it's not actually that old. Yeah. Um, but I would say we're, what we probably are is middle-aged. And, and, and the, the, like the, us. Like us. And the problem with industries like that is, I mean, you talk about, the, uh, about Audi, you know, with Levi's, all of these companies, all middle-aged companies. And the problem with middle-aged companies is that innovation doesn't mm. generally foster. So you can blame planners or you can blame the fact that we're a middle-aged business. I mean, if you want to see, going back to Tesla or, or Apple, if you want to see innovation coming in the automo automotive industry, mm. you actually have to look to a technology company that didn't have one automotive guy working in it mm. to launch an, an electric car brand. So uh, I, I don't want this and to get well, into a, a huge conversation no, about no, business or no. innovation. or. But you do look at those brands like Apple, Tesla, Red Bull. They, they're, uh, you know, Tesla will put one of their cars in space with a robot driving it around the earth, right, as their ad. Or, you know, to Red Bull will do uh, sports, high-impact sports that people can get killed in, and they'd also have some little shit ad on the, on the television just to show that they they do they do uh, mainstream uh, advertising. They're, they're brands that are kind of so confident that they do their own thing, and they don't give a shit about it. Like, even back to Benetton, when they were doing all their weird posters and stuff like that back in the 90s, which was way ahead of its time, in my view. But again, you know, what's that got to do with selling jumpers? They rise above the fact that you don't need to, you don't necessarily need to show a jumper in a Benetton ad because everyone knows what it is. So what else do you bring to the party? That what that what else? So, what else do you bring to the party? So that comes ne like neatly round, Sean, to where I think the biggest problem with the the advertising industry over the last forty years or over the last fifteen or twenty years is that we've um, we've become middle aged, we've become out innovative. Uh, we don't innovate anymore. So continuing to work for P&G and Unilever and all of those companies that are, mm. quite frankly, fucking dead mm. and not working for the bright companies, well, emerging companies. Well, if we wanted to be the business that you that you and I wanted right. as angry young men back yeah, in the yeah, 1980s, yeah. then we would be involved with the companies that are disrupting, that are innovative, that are new yeah. and coming in. Because those are the companies, quite honestly, that if we are still the angry young men, that the companies are interesting to work for. Why you've talked about working for, wasting your fucking life working for Gillette, working for PG. Well, it was only for a few years. But I mean, wh like, what did you do? Yeah. I mean, you, you just said that it was the same yeah, fucking yeah, habit yeah, that came out after a result. So Nothing you I'm were proud of it. You were pedal paddling backwards at best mm. working for that. So mm. what was the benefit? Would you not have been better? Money. I got a lot of money. Exactly. Yeah. So would you have been better working for twenty five thousand dollars for a startup? and looking for the bigger prize. So if, and it's a big fucking if, we are an industry of innovators, right? So we come up with new stuff, we can think differently. Yeah. Then we should be working with companies that are do think differently and do innovate. And unfortunately, all of those S&P companies that you and I have talked about are not where that is. Yeah, I mean, I want to move away from advertising because most, I'm of glad. most of the listeners are not I'm really bored talking about I'm it. bored talking about it too. But like, in a, as a guy who spent, you know, as you said, nearly 40 years in corporate life, what, what, what are your sort of lessons that you've learned uh, coming out the other end? Like, what, is there anything that you kind of go, I mean, we, we often talk about, you know, in, in many of the jobs we worked in back in the, in, when we worked together, we learned out a lot about how not to do things. But what would you be saying to, because I, I used to talk about angry young men and women. I don't think there are, I don't think the culture of business is, is, is allowing those people to get anywhere anymore. I think they're weeded out and we're, we're, we're automatoning 
every job, not just in advertising. I mean, I'm not talking about the wider LinkedIn sort of oeuvre. Like, you know, you've got 20-something kids who are starting their work careers. I've only got four, by the way. Okay, that's four. Oh, that's a lot. But for someone who's got none, yeah, it's 400% more than I have. Um, so, <laughs> but what would you say to them? What, what lessons have you learned in that time? Or what would, if you were writing the Dave Hayes book on how to manage a career, what would you say to people? Because both of us start, both of us didn't go to college, right? So like maybe start with, before you answer that question, give your brain a bit of time to work on it. Like you didn't go to college like me, right? We started work at 18. Both yeah. of us, I started at 19. My advice to anybody coming through is to live in the moment and to realize how special that point of time is at any at any given moment. And that, that sounds like a, a, not a horseshoe. Yeah, I get that. But I'll briefly explain it by... by you mean everyone's focusing too much well, on the future? No, 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 no. What I think is that this is the most exciting point of my life. I don't mean my life. Of, of, to be alive. To be alive, right? So there's things that are happening. We talked to Tesla, Apple, the innovations, the stuff that are happening. Climate change, Patagonia, war in the Ukraine, Patagonia. But, but Well, think about, yeah, but I'm thinking more of it from a business <laughs> point of view. If you were launching a career, it's a really fucking exciting time to be. And I felt like that in 1982. Sure, so did I, yeah. And I feel like that now. So the one piece of advice I would give is that the past was was never better. The future will always be better. No matter us as old fogies looking back at it now, there's lots of things that's wrong with our business or with life that yeah. wasn't happening 20 or 30 years ago. But it is the most exciting time to be alive. Yeah. You have a Steven Pinker view of life. So my, my background was that I had a, you know, I didn't want to go to college. Um, I was an angry young man, very angry. Dave was from the rather Fresno town of Drogheda, north of Dublin, which is uh, slowly, uh, well, recently was taking over as the sort of murder capital of... Uh, yeah, I think I think it, it got the title recently um, of the second shittiest place to live in Ireland. So. <laughs> and I'm proud of that, to be honest. But um, yeah, so I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to go to work. I wanted to go to work as quickly as possible. Uh, I had been expelled from one school what were you expelled for? I was expelled for being, uh, I think I remember the, the Franciscan priest saying to me in front of my mother and father was, he's a very arrogant and aggressive young man. Right. And um, I think I've lost, I've definitely toned down the aggression. I'm an arrogant bollocks, but then I think to work in advertising, you've got to have arrogance. So my mother was a very shrewd woman and she brought me to a career guidance, which didn't really exist in the 80s, a guy who was doing Trinity College. You know, all these tests that everybody does now, decided that communications was something that I was potentially had something to do with. So I looked at journalism, I looked at advertising, and eventually settled on advertising. So I started in the, the mail room, but in Ireland at the time cool. it would have been called the post room. Yeah. So post for anybody who's listening in America is mail. Yeah. Um, and I arrived up that day in a suit with a tie on, and they were laughing in the post room saying, you know, what the fuck are you doing here? You're delivering post, you'll be yeah. black by the end of the day. <laughs> um, but it was, uh, I kind of set, my set, set it as an intention of, I'm not going to stay here, I'm going to move. So mm. uh, in six months time I did, moved into yeah. media and my only regret would be, um, I met somebody 
who worked in our London office about five or six years ago and she had done a really neat kind of chart of her career. She was early 30s. She'd been eight, eight or nine years and she'd worked in publishing. She'd worked in PR. She'd worked in advertising. She'd worked in about eight or nine different professions over a, an eight-year period. And she said, David, you, you're from an era where progression was straight up. It was linear. Yeah. She said, it's just a crazy chart of where I'll go throughout my life. Because what I would value and appreciate about younger people these days is that they live on experiences. Um, and that's one regret I had because I have, is that I've probably lost 20 years of my life where I didn't try and go out and grasp those experiences, which is why I'm sitting in Bordeaux with Sean Boyle, because yeah. I'm here to have an experience. Finally got through to you, yeah. You, you, you and Miriam had a baby very early and you got married fairly young. You know, when I look at my married friends and relationships and stuff like that, the, there's so much breakdown. And you know, you two have you two have kept out of you as you said you've got four kids, but you know, it was all thrust upon you quite young. So you had to you know, even my 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 parents were very much like, Oh, you've got to knuckle down and work hard and stay in the same company and get a pension. We were like almost the last generation of that and today there's kids who go, What the fuck's a pension? You know? So the first thing was um that uh going back to being an angry young man, I think at twenty four or twenty three you know, you have an appetite for life, certainly I had. Mm. Thankfully, you can't see too far in the future, so you kind of jump into things. You don't really know if it's a fire or it's an ice bath. Just jump into it and off you go. So we, we jumped into, I think in January 1990, I got married, had a child, bought a house, moved job, did about five life, life 23. Right. Um, did five life-changing things in one month and I don't ever remember it being stressful. Right. It's just, that was life and shit happened. Yeah. Um, not even living in Drada. Not even <laughs> living in Drada. But, as I said, go back to experiences, I mean, my life from 22 to 44 was just, I mean, you, you saw some of it, Sean. It was 90 miles an hour. Yeah. We worked hard. We fucking played hard. Yeah. We drank a lot. <laughs> Um, smoked a lot we smoked a lot and uh, I started a business and had four children I didn't have four children my wife had four children but none of it would have been possible without Miriam to be quite honest because she was the the rock, rock yeah, behind was. the whole thing yeah. and she's raised four amazing children and so one of the other things that uh, happened to you recently is this as we all get uh, aging I wanted to touch on because think you handled it really well was the health scare that you got this year tell us about that yeah so um oh god yeah that's um so i do did a, a health checkup about three years ago so discovered that i had a potential prostate issue and then that kind of chugs along over over covid and then so last january I went for further a couple of checks and then, you know, when, when your consultant rings you after you've done a, a biopsy and you missed the call, you realize he's not ringing you to say that everything's okay. So anyway, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And the funny thing about prostate cancer is that actually nobody ever says the cancer word. They just say prostate issue. You get your prostate out of you. Got this. And in it's all funny, of these, isn't it? It is kind of funny because 
Call a spade a spade, you know. One of the things I was encouraged to do was to go and talk to other people that had prostate cancer. And unfortunately, a lot of a lot, a lot of people die from it. But yeah, you, you, you kind of realise you're in the... Well, they kind of cover things. Well, firstly, you realise you're not... One in eight men basically get it. You're not going to fucking live forever. You're going to die. Yeah. Secondly is you feel touched by cancer. And thirdly, the most elevating moment for me was that I fucking enjoy living. <laughs> and I want to live a bit more. Yeah. So, yeah. So you got diagnosed with cancer and then they had to take your prostate out. Yeah. So what was that like? Uh, look, I consider myself to be an extremely lucky person. I've got a loving family, a loving wife. I've got fucking private health, health insurance. Yeah. Uh, I was in a private hospital. I didn't have to kill. What would have happened if you hadn't got private health insurance? Would you be on a waiting list? I'd be on a waiting list, Sean. Um, dying. Dying. Yeah. Or, you know. Dying? Not, well, uh, prostate like, cancer is a, is a, every got, day that a long by. fuse to it, so I, I, I wasn't going to die. I probably would have ended up dying in my late 60s, early 70s. And I probably fucking lived till my 80s. But anyway, I'm alive. And I, like I would consider myself a glass half full person. So my learning from it is that it's made me feel or refeel the kind of those tentacles of life that kind of inject yeah. that life into you. Well, Which is why I'm here in Bordeaux. No, I, I know, I've noticed a big change. I mean, I, I we used to come back from overseas, from the colonies occasionally, and myself and Dave would always make sure we got a big long luncheon or something or dinner. And I always was amazed at, you know, the fact that you were working nose to the grind and stuff like that. But I can see a huge change in you since that. And probably so, before that, actually. Do you mind if I just turn to turn the table sure. here a little bit? Because I'd like to ask you one or two questions, yeah. if that's okay. Um, so, the first thing, right, to know about Sean and I is that I, you know, I'm not going to get emotional here, but Sean's leaving. He's, he's been around for about five years. He's going back east. Sounds like something out of a cowboy movie, but he's going back I east. <laughs> but um, I said to Sean last night that um, he's a tinker, which is a kind of an Irish term. No, I don't say that anymore. Am I itinerant or no, vagabond? I just said all three. Yeah, um, but one of the things that connects me, um, I think, to Sean is the fact that we lived through, back in the 90s, quite a, we certainly enjoyed ourselves, but we lived through, you know, quite a lot of very deep experiences yeah. as being two angry young men. So I feel an emotional connection to Sean that I probably feel stronger than anybody else and yeah. not having known him for a great period of time. But my question to you, where the fuck is the question in this, is um, I'm desires. worried about you, right? Yeah. So you're a vagabond in your mid-50s, yeah. which is definitely not mid-life, you're an old man. Yeah. Um, and I'm worried about you, so what's the plan? How are you going to sustain yourself from a mental health point of view, from a physical health point of view, with no support, or sorry, a lack of support as you go east? Yeah, I mean, I've always felt personally that I've been very much plowing my own furrow since I was very young. Uh, I'm quite good in my own company. I find it weird that I'm, a lot of my friends find it weird that I'm doing this. I don't find it that weird because I've kind of done it before. And, you know, you were saying there, talking about your cancer, about how, it, you know, reinforced how much you like living. I love living too. I, I, I've, I've worked out, I've, I'm working on a couple of theories. One is know when to stop peddling. And it's, I've been kind of saying stuff like this for quite a long time in my life, but I've recently articulated to stop peddling, know when 
and that you have enough money. And once you have enough money, and again, it di differs from someone with four kids to someone with no kids, get out. Because really, at the end of the day, nothing matters. What I mean by nothing matters on a macro scale is that the Earth is plummeting to, into the sun in millions of years' time. But that's why I'm very much supportive. All these people are saying, oh, Elon Musk shouldn't be fucking you know, spending money going to Mars. You know, if you listen to him, what he's trying to do is preserve consciousness, that we're the only species on Earth that has consciousness and knows that it's not going to end well. And it might not end well for nuclear war reasons. It might not end well for lots of other reasons, for climate reasons. And he wants to try and make sure that we preserve that by getting off the planet. And there's lots of people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and all these people who are putting money into mosquito nets and everything to try and fix all the major issues we have and still have going on 40, 50 years with famine and, 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 and poverty and all that stuff. And we haven't made a dent in that. So I quite like the fact, I think he'll be seen as a sort of a Henry Ford type Einstein character in, in the future. So knowing when to stop peddling is that the, and then if you come down to the micro of making ads for a razor blade company or, or a shampoo, really it doesn't matter. And yet at the time, you know, we talked earlier about the ego, the ego says, no, it is true. It's very important what we're doing. So what I like liken it is that we're in a movie and our movie now is in Bordeaux and you're here with me and we're talking and, uh, you know, I, I joke that we're, we are, we're actually in a movie where you can watch movies. And so, so can I just interject for a second because I'm interested in what you I've never heard you saying it before said it before but stop peddling okay so I'm facing the void of retirement yeah. which is uh, for 40 years it's, it's like a semi-frightening thing for me yeah. to do so stop peddling can you just what, just, what has peddling to stop peddling meant for you uh, uh, are you enjoying it the first thing you have to do is not be afraid of suddenly not going to work every day because actually going to work every day is a bit like saying you know, the joy that you got when you finished school. You know, like Doug Stanhope does a great bit about kids and school, which I'll play now. I come after the fucking, oh, the only time that I saw anyone that crossed the aisles where everyone is sided up. Well, if I wear a mask, that means I'm a fucking, I'm, schools. The only time I saw people like change sides, Real, if, they, if you have kids, we have to reopen these schools. The biggest fucking left-wing, snowflake, cancel culture cunt, and the biggest fucking Nazi, right-wing, Asian-punching, hate militia person. Oh, if they both had kids, oh, now they're friends. We gotta reopen these schools. Our children are suffering. No, you're suffering your children and you deserve it. If you thought for a second you, you're going to have to spend a year and a half stuck inside of 1,200 square feet of manufactured housing with those fucking animals. You spend three days at Disneyland with those monsters and you're rethinking fucking pro-life. school is the 
worst fucking experience. That's every reason I fear going to prison is everything I feared every goddamn day I went to school for nine years. There's no reason. Why does school even exist? Like, school is such an antiquated concept in a fucking progressive so like, well, with what we have now, why is school even a thing? Your kid has ultimate knowledge right at his fingertips on that fucking tablet you bought him to distract him. He's got Google. Why are you gonna send him out to a street corner like pedo bait to get picked up by a fucking school bus with those seatbelts and then sit in some fucking dungeon and get yelled at by some old lady from looking out the window. You're not paying attention. That'd be more fucking interesting. <laughs> judge how I did, you're getting paid to be the teacher. Why do I get the F if I suck? <laughs> Your kid can learn what he's interested in just on his laptop. And if he doesn't have any interests, you could make him learn what you're interested in and having him know. You can watch a three minute YouTube video and be changing your oil. <laughs> and he's sick, so he fits right under the car. <laughs> and he would know that for the rest of his life. I'm not telling you how to raise your children, I'm telling you to raise your children. <laughs> you never hear of homeschool shootings. <laughs> Expect the fucking government to babysit fucking eight hours a day, five days a week for most of the year. That's not very anti-government, is it? So, you know, any kid that says they like school and then the COVID thing and that we have to get our kids back to school, it's because the parents are going, get the fucking kids off my table every day. When you leave school, you go, brave new world. When you stop working, it should be seen as a brave new world. Now you have to have something that you want to do more than work and there's a lot of people who don't they just want to keep on working till the day they die but even if i'm traveling around the world now with a mobile phone and internet connection i've every book known to man i've every movie known to man i've all the sporting events i've everything that i want at the touch of a rubbery button i spent a lot a lot of the last few years working on because i never went to college i've been studying philosophy and i've been i've been thinking about the meaning of life answer meaningless I think I don't believe we have free will ideas come into our head that we just react to and react upon and to answer your question what's going to happen I don't know what's going to happen but in fact I've only booked a flight to Athens next Saturday and then I haven't worked out where I'm going from there so something will happen and uh, so I'm going to ask you two questions yeah. then just on that right I'm, and I'm going to play with some yeah, meddling okay. metaphor sure. if you don't mind so the first question I have is that you talked about Gillette and we've talked about it a bit. So the stop the pedaling metaphor, do you feel at times that in your career has been like an exercise bike? You've been pedaling but fucking going nowhere and Gillette being a good example of that. And the second part to that is that to do it over again, would you do the same thing or would you 
do something different. Would I, would I have done advertising? Or no, would you have worked on the Gillette business, which was um, a bit of that I mean, it doesn't matter. What, on I, don't, I don't think it matters what brand, to be honest. You know, I mean, even if you were, even if you're working on Audi, you know, Forsprung, Dirk Technic, you'd be trying to beat that, what we were talking about, that stuff that John Hegarty did, and no one's ever done that. So there's probably lots of people in my boat who've spent five years of working on Audi and gone, no, nothing happened. Advertising is a business that I uh, find morally and ethically questionable. Um, and I'm, you know, someone who gets on my hobby horse about that, even though I totally see the, the, the sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, the, the hypocrisy of that because I made a lot of money out of it and it's got me to this stage. But I was always trying to get to this stage where I would be out of the business in my 50s and have freedom to travel or freedom to write or freedom to study things or freedom to read or whatever it is. Um, so I'll stop you there because that's a, my second question is around the pedaling post stop pedaling. Yeah. So you talked about philosophy and all of that. So what's the purpose to what you're doing now? And do you find that purpose more satisfying? Well, I, I certainly find it more satisfying because you're I'm my own boss um, and I can do whatever I like and I mean the stop pedaling is a theory I'm working on the first rule of it as well don't tell everyone to stop pedaling because if everyone stops pedaling you're going to have to start pedaling again <laughs> <laughs> love that one someone's going to have to empty the bins but we don't think about that we think much more about career and can I get to this next point can I get to this promotion can I work on this brand can I work in this company and it doesn't have to be anything to do with advertising I've gone on about on the podcast a lot. People who listen regularly will know that a, a, a girl from Australia, one, a guest once said, we only have 30 summers left. And this applies to you and your cancer situation where you kind of go, the last five are probably going to be shit. And I've been saying this for five years, so I've only got 25 left. And you just go, we only have one spin around. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, I'm 50. That's optimistic. Well, yeah, if I get to 80, I'll be doing well. There's this thought I have, which I'm also developing, which is optimistic nihilism. It's kind of like everything. We're not going to be climate change because we're not actually set up to be climate change. We're a consumer growth based consume, grow, eat. You know, it's, it's like the way we beat climate change is we stop 80 percent of the flights flying from Dublin to London every day and all other airports. We actually impose restrictions on commerce and capitalism. And capitalism won't allow that. What they're doing is they're turning around to you and saying, you're the problem, Dave. You shouldn't be flying as much. And they make it your issue. What's your carbon footprint, Dave? Well, what's Ryanair's carbon footprint? That's what we should be. That's how we fix it a lot quicker. But the, the whole capitalist system doesn't allow that to happen. You can hear Ryanair already shouting in, their, in our ears. So optimistic nihilism is, it, it's kind of all fucked. I don't mean do nothing, I mean recycle, do what you can, but the optimistic bit of that is don't kill yourself because it's still a great world out there and you can, you can, as I said, we're in a movie, but you're, we're in a movie where you can watch movies, you know, so, you know, there's, there's a, a rich template of learning if you want to do that. I mean, some people might want to paint, some people might want to go live by a, a lake with their dog and fish and their wife and whatever, you know, it's whatever you want to do that you feel is more enriching. I think it's where we should be aiming, not how high up a corporate ladder we get. Uh, and then the issue then is how much is enough? So how much money do I need? And we keep, when we get to those milestones, we keep going, oh yeah, but I need more for this and this and this. 
and there's also this you know all these artists who die penniless that's the way you should die penniless like you've done a great job if you end up coming to the very end and you've got nothing and you're out so, um, so one of should I be sorry should I be helping more uh, you know some people say well you know you've got a lot of time in your hands you should be doing more for charity or you should be helping people in need you know and I look at that and I kind of have a similar jaundiced view of the performative nature of that and I go well you know I have a will and I leave a, I'm leaving a third of whatever I have left <laughs> of my pennilessness to charity and that money will do more than any performative work that I choose to do while I'm living so that's interesting so I want to go back to purpose because mm. I'm, this is a very selfish uh, question on my behalf because I've spent the last 40 years with a very distinct purpose. Most of those years have been providing for four, four children and a wife. Um, so I'm facing into this void or chasm, whatever you want to call it, of retirement of going, what is the purpose? So my question back to you is, so the next five years, and I'm, I'm not saying you should have a purpose or maybe even a lack of purpose is the answer to this question, but Five years time, Shawnee, we're in, I don't know, the Solomon Islands, sitting around a campfire. I have a bone in my nose. I, you have a bone in your nose, and I'm asking you the question. So what was the purpose, Sean, and did you achieve it? What's the answer? I think, I think things like, from a personal nature, curiosity, uh, always learning, uh, having, a, having a point of view on, on, on your own life and what it is. This whole thing about purpose, there's an outward version of what are you what what are you showing your purpose to be? Am I writing books? Am I writing stuff? Am I putting stuff out there? But there's much more important to me is the inward purpose. Am I happy? Am I living in a place where I feel happy? Do I get up in the morning happy to be wherever I'm living? Um, and like you know, just even the difference between living in Sydney, where I did live before, and Dublin is there's a huge gap, and they're the same price to live in both of them. So the economics of it is the same. And if you can, why wouldn't you live in a place that was more amenable to living? Um, not that Dublin is terrible. I mean, we're one of the richest countries in, in, in Ireland is one of the richest countries. So in final question, the world. Sean. I have to ask this question, right? So yeah. five years time, we're on the beach in the right. Solomon Islands, right? Love. Is there love in Sean's vision of this purpose in the next five years? Well, is, it, is it to the side? Is it to the front? What's your hope and... and yeah, I mean, I think Aspirations you, you then, taking me out of the equation, most people have, you know, love, shelter, living standard, health as as pillars of, 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 of what we would consider a happy and successful life. You can't force anyone to love you, you know, so, uh, you know, having someone to love and being in love is... And I suppose I'm like everybody else. It's a joyful and joyous thing when you're in love, and it's a it's a it's a pinnacle of where people are all trying to get to. I mean, look at the dating apps. Look at the fact that people go out. I mean, if you go to a nightclub and you watch people in a nightclub and try and remove yourself from the reality and look at what you're looking at, you're looking at a bunch of people who've had showers, put on their best underpants and lingerie and gone out to dance to 80s music with dry ice pumping to get drunk in the hope that really at the end of the day, yeah, some people, I love dancing or, you know, but they're really kind of trying to be in love and find love and find a partner that way. It's kind of crazy, you know, it's kind of weird. Um, we go to pubs to meet people 
But, which is why I asked the question. Because so it five is, years' it time, is, I would love to be. It is a human purpose, an innate human purpose. I think it happens or it doesn't happen. If you're, in, I mean, sometimes you're in love and you think you're in love, and the person maybe doesn't love you as much as you thought they they did, and you can't do anything about that except maybe walk away from it and and. and maybe remember the the, the, the good bits um, and, and not really let it affect you. I have, I you know, I would hope that I'm in love and I would hope that I have a partner and I, it's much better to share the world, to share your life with somebody as you know, that it isn't. I mean, loneliness and, and uh, its attendant um, effects on mental health and stuff is a real issue that's happening. And I think as we start I mean, my view is that we're walking ourselves into our computers, and I think that you know we will be able to find love on computers and phones that that will be satisfactory enough, a bit like the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix, where you know he's fallen in love with a girl in his phone, um, and he brings her everywhere. I mean, there's no physical uh, expression of the love, but you know that can be tended to. And you know you end up you end up I think with a with a world where loneliness is combated through and you know where does the AI end up there where where you end up having kids who are just you know they don't go to nightclubs they stay behind computers all day so now we're into Ready Player One territory where we only we only log out of whatever this metaverse or whatever uh, Zuckerberg is talking about or whoever that manifests to shit and eat. And eventually, I think what will happen is, my, my prediction for the world is that, it might be 100 years, it might be 200 years, is that we will eventually, as a species, coexist with uh, computer versions of ourselves to the point where we may eventually decide that the best way forward for the human species and to protect what will be a dying consciousness is to actually close ourselves down and allow these machines to take over and the brief will be to bring the world back to some sort of stability and we'll do that willingly so it won't be robot overlords fighting us we'll actually decide that actually we are such consumers of all the resources on earth and we're killing all the animals that we will eventually decide actually no the best thing is if we weren't here and we don't, we realize that there's no God, there's no afterlife. And, the, you know, this is the nihilistic bit, but it could be optimistic nihilism where we actually decide as a species to remove ourselves from the equation, but our consciousness will somehow be captured. So there'll be a kind of right and wrong. There'll be a way in which we, we instruct and, and guide. We will, be, we will be like God to these robots. We will be like the God. We will be like the person who they will. We will have, have programmed them, but we will have programmed them to make sure the Earth gets back to equilibrium. And I don't think that's that sad because I think I think that we're the ones who are the, we're the cancer to you know, to use the cancer analogy. We're the cancer in 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 the world today, and we the, the, the stubbornness with which we're we're holding on to religion, be it Islam or. Or Christianity or whatever is is astonishing, astounding, isn't it? It's astounding. I I, I think um, no matter how rosy you try and paint that picture, it does sound Depressing. very bleak. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. I think it may happen, or probably will happen. 
probably not as, as doomsday as you painted there. So all that's left of me is to ask you one final question. I thought that was... On a slightly lighter note, yeah. I've decided to ask one final question because it got quite grim and dim at that point. Is I don't mean it to be that grim. I mean it to be very positive, actually. Give me the next couple of weeks, Sean. So give me the, just give me the itinerary for the next couple of weeks that's coming up for you. Well, I'm going to the Greek islands, and uh, which is... I mean, Greece is a place uh, that has always weirdly had a... Uh, ethereal whatever word connection to me I don't know what it is about the place especially the islands is a sort of an elemental historic simplicity to that country that I really love um, I'm going a bit off season so I don't know how long I'm going to stay there I'll probably go out to Singapore where I have a lot of friends maybe pop up to Thailand where I used to live for three years and maybe go to Bali and then end up in Sydney probably in December so that sounds like a fucking gigantic holiday. <laughs> well, I wish you the best. Yeah, and something will something will happen. This has turned into an interview of me rather than an interview of you. I'm trying to work out what uh, what are the questions I have for you. I mean, I think one of the the things that I've noticed with you is is just this. It's almost like a, a I'm not going to say second chance, but what has happened to you with the cancer scare is I can feel a real change in you of trying to make sure that you use what time when I say time you have left but this time going into retirement to travel and to, to, to do to do bucket list things that you and Miriam have wanted to do and I think you know make sure you do that when you stop pedaling you talked about having a purpose and you were talking about being scared about like what the hell would I do you'll find something there'll be something there and um, just grasp it with both hands one of, one of the things that I've enjoyed most post that scare uh, I don't know if you'd agree with it, but it's the joy of doing nothing, um, yeah. which is something I haven't enjoyed in over 40 years. So again, I mean, I have a piece in this, it's, you know, the, the other joke about, you know, um, stop peddling as well. If you're going to stop peddling, why are you going to write a book about it? I may write a book about it, but, you know, this idea that uh, if I if I sat on a mountaintop in India, you know, for a year, and grew my beard and ate berries and came back with some enlightenment, very skinny, probably. Huh? Very well, I could do it losing a bit of weight. Um, everyone goes, oh, it's amazing what I do. Right? You know? But if I sat, like, uh, you know, in an apartment building somewhere, just eating cheese puffs and watching uh, movies during the day, or, or even listening to podcasts about philosophy and getting enlightenment there, Sean's very lazy, you know. This idea of doing nothing, if you can afford to do nothing, I don't see anything wrong with it. You know, I think we're, we're again programmed and we're programmed by sort of the capitalist consumer nature that you have to be always putting something on the table, bringing something to the party. Not necessarily. There's lots of stuff at the party as well that you can go and just enjoy. I think, though, Sean, there's an Irishness to, um, again, we've talked about this before, but um, having been products of the 70s where our own parents grew up in a post-World War II right. Ireland yeah, yeah. where you know working in the underground in London or digging whatever it was in New York yeah there was a I don't know an innate kind of if you weren't working you were lazy Irish kind of attitude so yeah. I think it's everywhere I mean the, the progress that humans seem to have to make on a one level is very simple make sure that your children's life is better than the one you had and actually we're the first Generation that that's looking like that might not be the case. I mean, I think lots of things, um, convenience and technology and all that is always going to be better, as you said earlier in the podcast. But 
being able to buy a home, being able to settle down, being able to, like I find children, I find we talked about starting work at 18 or 19. I don't, kids seem to be much more juvenile at that age now. And they're, they're starting to mature to working out what they want to do much later. And they're kind of, the, the, the idea, I may sound like a real grumpy old man now, but the idea of, of just applying yourself to the point where there's going to be hardship and you can't just throw in the towel. Uh, and Stuff to, like that is going and away. And to be honest, Sean, I mean, going back to me being the internal optimist and you being the, the grim reaper. Well, optimistic nihilism is my But um, I think that the benefits of automation and AI is that if it removes for this generation a lot of the tasks that are manual, uh, menial, and that creates time for people to spend more time here in Bordeaux or in Sydney, well, that's a good thing. I think the line is that when it encroaches into what is how we control ourselves or how we run our own lives, mm. which is the picture rather kind of dystopian 1970s movie picture you've painted there of, <laughs> of um, you know, the whole extinction of the human race okay, but if you do at, look at the hands of a if computer. If you do look at it in a micro sense and you say, I don't know, there's something like 300,000 truckers in, in the US, okay? And we know in the next 10 years that, you know, long distance trucking will eventually be automated. Well, what do those 300,000 people do? I mean, they're not, they're not like very well, they go to Bordeaux for a fucking weekend, right? And you can't suddenly turn around to a 50 year old fucking Wendy's Baconator eating fucking mustachio redneck Trump supporting, sorry, truck drivers if you're listening, and say, you know, you should get a job in IT. <laughs> you know? So there's going to be an awful lot of people coming on the door. So I think things like uh, universal basic income will come into play, where we will pay people money to do nothing, save, go to the shop to buy food, which keeps the economy ticking over. But like th- th- that, that whole thing, I, I think, think much closer. You and I are we, stretching into another podcast that we're not qualified. Well, okay, but I, I think, think if you look back at the industrial revolution, you'll see that exactly you have the same that thing. And Genesis we got through it. We got goes through it, it, and some people get left behind yeah. because they only know how to. I don't know, fucking rear, rear cows. Yeah. And don't know how to work in the production line. So all of these things evolve, and that's what the human race is pretty good at doing. What I would say is the human race is very good at doing is evolving and developing. So climate change, I think, is very real, but I do think we'll come up with a solution which may not be moving to Mars. I think we'll come up with a solution on Earth. We I'm not sure that maybe. solution will be as grim as computers well, I mean, I'm talking running, hundreds of years Running time. the earth and, and we decided we... That idea is about 200 years' time or 100 years' time. I mean, I think we do, you know, you talk about the Industrial Revolution, you've got to also remember that those factories started, they were workhorses, they were slave labor, there was children being sent down mines, there was, you know, very, very poor working conditions, and that was the start. And of don't forget the canaries. And the canaries in the mine, exactly. But, you know, um, there's, there was no halcyon days of Industrial Revolution you know the car came and well what what happens to the horses well you know now we can fly you know and between whatever it was 1906 or 09 or whatever the Wright brothers first bounced off the ground you know to 1968 we put a man on the moon so there's that continuum of progress and the need for you know it was like with COVID when all the people in COVID were given out about um the conspiracy theories there are people who thousands of people around the world who every day go to work keeping an eye on whether there's a virus that might take over the earth. They've been doing this for years. 
suddenly it happens and they start blowing whistles and they're like, ah shut up you don't know what you're fucking talking about you know we have we, that's the reality of it and like Pfizer and all these guys spending billions trying to rush through a vaccine don't take the fucking vaccine it's, you know we have this ridiculous stupidity at our core and it's surprising we even get anywhere in my view but down to this week the challenge of a meteor hitting earth and we just hit it NASA yeah, we blasting just, uh, it away I, 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 that just happened two days ago and I'm kind of going well, it was very scant was, did it work? It was like, they did it, but did it work? I haven't heard that yet. They're going, well, they back to you on whether it worked or not. <laughs> Once they manipulate the data to say that it did work. Um, anyway, Dave, uh, that, that was great. I Anything else before we finish? That's it. No, I just, I, all I can left to say is, um, good luck in your travels and Thank may you. you find what you're looking for or, or even better, what you're not looking for. We'll try and keep the podcast going as I travel. Uh, Thank you all for uh, continuing to uh, support the podcast on Patreon. That's uh, Patreon backslash Shawnee B if you want to contribute a pint. And thank you, David Hayes, for being my latest guest. Thank you, Sean Mark. Mind yourself.